Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Classical podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Talking Classical podcast and you'll receive a notification every time a new episode is released. You can also follow the Talking Classical podcast on Twitter, on the Talking Classical blog and on Facebook and YouTube. Many thanks for listening once again. I hope that you'll be able to join me for the next episode very soon. Welcome back to another episode of the Talking Classical Podcast. I'm really pleased to be presenting this episode in partnership with the Music at Mauling Festival and Wildcat PR. Last week, I spoke to Thomas Kemp, violinist, conductor and director of the Music at Mauling Festival. Based in the beautiful and historic surroundings of West Mauling in Kent, this year's festival has been moved online due to the current coronavirus pandemic. So, the festival has been renamed At Home with Music at Morling. Don't forget that you can book your tickets for this fabulous festival, which runs from the 16th to the 18th of October. There's a wonderful and varied lineup of artists and programmes, and you can book a season ticket for the whole festival for only £25. Enjoy listening to this conversation with Thomas Kemp. Well, I started my musical journey, uh, I, I would have been about seven, I suppose, um, in West Morling Primary School. I grew up in the village where the festival now is. I started the violin, um, I used to have my lessons in the school kitchen, so while I was sort of playing very badly, I remember sort of smelling ravioli and spaghetti and things being cooked while we were doing the violin. I don't think you could get away with doing that now because of health and safety but I kind of very quickly got really enthusiastic about music and I knew from very early age really that that's what I wanted to do as a career so I I, I worked internationally as a as a violinist and uh, latterly I've, I've been working more as a conductor and it kind of occurred to me that where I'd grown up had all these incredible sort of historic buildings and with a very rich history dating back to Roman times and beyond that actually. But there was no culture in terms of, of music, no, no history of professional concerts, no real engagement with schools with music and I went back to my former primary school this was about 11 years ago and I very quickly realized that there was little music going on and it just made me feel really a bit depressed and um, I thought well I know all these amazing musicians and people working in the arts maybe now is the time to put something back into where I grew up and set up a festival and actually bring outstanding musicians and composers, actors, dancers, all the different areas of the arts, bring them into a, a local community and inspire people through creativity, 
concerts, workshops, outreach events. And it's kind of grown from that. I wouldn't say it's been easy and I've learned a huge amount over the last decade. Needless to say about sort of fundraising, uh, marketing, what works, what doesn't work. And we're very fortunate with Music and Walling that we have a lot of local involvement. And my kind of aim has always been to have something that is primarily local, but it acts as a resource regionally and nationally. And it sets an example of what can be achieved in a small community without being pretentious or grand. Our ticket prices are very reasonable. We try and make things as inclusive as possible. We also really try very hard to break down the barriers that might exist, mainly through perception between the audience and the artists. And we do a lot of work to do that. And I think when I look back over the last 10 years, we've achieved more than I could have ever have imagined in many different respects. And of course, with the COVID uh, curveball that has occurred, uh, the easiest thing would have been not to do, do, do anything and just sit it out. But I kind of thought about this and I thought, actually, we need to change what we do because we can do nothing about concerts. We can't do anything about social distancing. Concerts aren't viable with without an audience and people don't really want to go to a concert where they're where it's, it doesn't really feel like it, it used to. So I thought, well, maybe this is, we have to treat this as an opportunity to find new ways of, of reaching new audiences and basically having the same elements that we've always had, which has been contemporary music, supporting outstanding living composers, outreach and high-level concerts that range across 400 years of music. So we, at the earliest piece will be this year by Dowland and 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 some of the pieces on the Go Compose uh, workshops we have will be world premieres. So we've got everything from 400 years ago to now. The challenges have been a lot, um, but I've had a lot of help and support. And I think it's difficult for musicians because we spend so much of our time refining our art you know refining our playing or if you're a singer your voice if you're a composer your technique and imagination and this pandemic is certainly in my case I've had to think I've had to try and grapple with things that I would normally not have to think about like technology and how you can actually make it effective and I think it's a risk um, and I'm not sure how successful it will be but what I do know is that you have to try things and if they don't work you have to learn why they didn't work and some things will work really well and other things won't and i think as long as you accept that then this whole period is not so bad but if you let it get on top of you and you lose your creativity and your will to try hard and do you know keep things going in some shape or form i think that is a real problem so i've tried under the lockdown to keep going to try and focus on things that make a positive impact needless to say all our artists are being paid more than uh, they're being paid above what they would normally get for concert fees uh, because obviously doing recording pre-recording is very time consuming and so I'm, I'm i'm actually primarily i'm really glad that i've been able to help 
some of my colleagues, many of whom have lost an enormous amount of work. And it's quite an emotional thing, you know, seeing people that you've worked with for 20 years and they just really love what they do. And it's, it's kind of tragic that they've been prevented from doing that. But in its own small way, I think we have to embrace the changes and we have to look at adapting what we've taken for granted into something else. And I firmly believe that in a couple of years' time, many arts organisations, the ones that are still standing, will will have a combination of online and and live. And it, and it makes sense. I think these things were definitely, they were trends that were happening over the last decade and this whole covid situation has brought it into very sharp focus so we've suddenly had to adapt very quickly whereas it might if this hadn't have happened it would be maybe another five or ten years and you'd suddenly find that people would do it but now they have to do it you have to like embrace the change or not do music it's it's really that simple and i've always been someone that has always tried to do things and, and try to find ways of making things happen rather than finding reasons for them not happening. And I think that has actually been quite a useful thing to have in these circumstances. And I don't wouldn't say it has been easy, and, and I know a lot of people don't have that, but I think you, you have to kind of turn these situations into something positive. Otherwise, you know, the, the, it's just too much to think about, quite frankly. So yeah, that's basically the background to the festival. Obviously, in a week where the viability of freelance musicians' work is being debated and discussed, do you think that online streamed festivals and concerts like yours can help to provide a a viable business model for artists? I think they can up to a point. And of course... They, of course, they're providing work, and there, there are two elements here. One is mental, and one is financial. And I think it's complicated because, in a way, musicians and freelance artists are more complicated. It's a more complicated thing than if you, say, make walls, because you can learn to make a wall in six months if you go on a course. Mm. But to learn the violin to the level that I've had to learn it, it, it takes years and I'm still learning. And, and all that investment that's gone into my training from the government um, is, is, is a huge public investment. And so artists, musicians, are public, they're a public resource. You know, that investment that's been made in their training is something for the benefit of the whole country, not just in terms of... The, the money and the revenue it brings. It's also to do with well-being and actually these people are providing lessons to people, they're inspiring young people, they're playing on pop tracks, film scores, uh, concerts, at people's weddings. I mean, there's a massive, massive amount of stuff. And then you have all the ecosystem that is based around that. And it's quite frankly tragic that people are in this position. I mean, musicians aren't asking we don't none of us believe that we're owed a living that otherwise we would maybe work in another sector people do it because they're good at it and they do it because they love it and they believe in it they believe in the value of it if you didn't believe in the value of music you wouldn't be a musician 
And if you weren't obsessed with music, you wouldn't be a professional musician. There's no way you can do it. It would be a hobby, but that's a different thing. And what the government is saying is turn it into a hobby and retrain. But they're not providing any financial solutions to this either. And I think it's a massive issue, but, I, but it's one that I've kind of pushed to one side because in my own, I feel that my strengths as an organiser a better place to actually creating work for people rather than actually protesting about the lack of work. So, but I, I'm, I'm not saying that, that, that one's the right thing or the other, because of course the issues that were raised this week are, are very timely and they, this is what should have been happening months ago. Um, it should have been flagged up. I think that there is, I mean, one thing I would say about music at Morling is the expense at the minute of actually recording and paying people proper money when there's no income. Well, you can't use box office income, you can't predict it. Certainly smaller organisations, it's a big risk. So as to how sustainable it is, that's one issue. But then I figured that if we treat this festival as a kind of pivotal, pivotal festival, so we're using technology much more than we would have done. We've redesigned our website We've got the back end of our website much more geared up towards doing live streaming, uh, just giving, all the things that you can kind of generate website traffic with. Uh, we, we've always, we'll be refreshing all our content much more, so there'll always be new things to watch, playlists, all these different things. That, moving forwards, will, will be integral to how we move on from this so I figured if we didn't do this then we'd just be sort of well when when a concert's coming back and then you could be two or three years down the line and then people have forgotten about what you did in the first place so mm. you know it, it's about it, it's it's more complicated than than um just like we're not doing anything or we are doing something it's actually about doing things but having a mind as to where you want to be in four or five years time and actually one of the issues I would say with this pandemic and I don't want to be political, is the lack of clear long-term planning makes it very hard for people to plan ahead. And I think the psychological damage that that does is actually probably, in some respects, worse than the fear of getting the disease in the first place. Because people like to have some kind of certainty. And certainly in music, you know, if you have to learn a huge opera to conduct, you, you can't just pick it up the night before. You have to learn it. You know, if you're planning a festival, you you can't just organise it on two weeks' notice. You need six months. And I found actually organising this all online, it, it was very time-consuming because you're having to learn through trial and error what works and what doesn't. And even when you think something works, like as we've seen with Zoom, you know, it, it's not rocket, it's not bulletproof. And of course, it's because it's new. And anything that's new it's not going to be 100% reliable. So I think, bearing that in mind, I think musicians shouldn't be frightened of failure and they shouldn't be frightened of experimenting and trying. Some of it will work, some of it won't work. But as long as you can accept that, then I think that's a sort of sound basis from which to move on and find new ways of, of creating work for other people and also for, for um, developing an organization as well um, logistically and in terms of strategy mm, definitely and I think that leads on very nicely to to my next question because I know that you and your artists have been in the process of um, filming some of these concerts 
So were there any particular challenges that cropped up during filming technologically or with social distancing and not having the presence of a live audience? Well, I think there's several issues and actually there's a couple of talks that will be part of the festival. And one is with Lizzie Ball and James Pearson, who were both fantastic musicians. James is artistic director of Ronnie Scott's and Lizzie is in charge of Classical Kicks. She's the artistic director of Classical mm -hmm. Kicks. And we were talking about this. When you are filming something, in the case of this festival, there's no editing. So it is live. We did maybe two or three takes of a whole piece because sometimes you get to sort of bar 324 and someone opens a door or you hear a, a helicopter or something. So, but it's not really you know, you don't, you haven't got an audience there. So you, it's not like you're responding to the atmosphere that the audience give. But at the same time, it's also not a studio recording because if you, if a helicopter came overhead while you were recording, you'd stop and you just re-record the piece, the bit that had been affected by the noise. So psychologically for musicians, it's a kind of slightly uncomfortable halfway house between recording and performing live to an audience but I think that's something that one has to get used to the reason why we did it this way round by doing pre-records again was born out of my paranoia that the internet connections weren't good enough and that actually having people in a room performing live if something goes wrong with the tech and you've charged people to watch then they'll never forgive you quality across live streaming doesn't always work Exactly. So, so I had to factor that in. What I do believe, though, however, is that because of the way that technology is rapidly adapting, that live streaming will become more and more viable in terms of um, organisations being able to do it quite straightforwardly. You wouldn't necessarily need to have a big technical team to, to be there to do it. Um, and I think you would get much more interaction through Twitter and social media during performances. The way that we've done it this time is probably like the safest way to do it, given the way things, the technology is now. And of course, we did all the social distancing and stuff, which in its own way presents certain challenges because you can't hear your colleagues as easily being further apart. But then I guess it, you know, you have to adapt and you have to find different ways of listening and, and communicating with your colleagues. And we're very fortunate in that the venue that we use has got really good acoustics, so you can actually hear very clearly and it doesn't feel too lonely when you're playing, even if you're standing a couple of metres away from the next person. So I think from that side of it, things went very well. And I'm just really pleased that we managed to do something given the circumstances. So what can audiences expect from At Home with Music at Morling this year? I had a look at your, your programme and I love the fact that it's just so diverse and you've got so many different genres on there, not just core classical, but jazz, contemporary, choral music, world music. Well, we, I, I, I'm, I've got quite eclectic tastes and the way that I programme the festival and many of the artists come back year after year, I kind of try and programme it so that there's a common theme, there are common themes that run through the whole programme. So, for example, if you take Beethoven, for example, some of his piano sonatas 
border on sounding like jazz. So someone like James Pearson in 100 Years of Jazz, I'll, I'll let him know. <laughs> There's We're doing a bit of Beethoven and he'll find a way of kind of tying that in. So if you watch one concert, you'll enjoy it. But if you watch the whole lot, you'd be taken on a musical journey where the sum of the parts add up to quite a coherent whole. I think when you're programming anything, actually, the primary purpose, apart from entertaining people, is to educate people, to, to actually show the similarities and the dissimilarities between different musical types and to show the kind of commonality and the diversity of, of different composers and different musics and I think that just makes it much more interesting and it's perfectly fine if someone says I don't like that that's fine but at least they've listened to it what is more of a problem is where people think I don't like contemporary music so I'm not listening to it but they haven't ever heard any so what I try and do is make it kind of mix it about around a bit so that someone who say watches the Beethoven plus strand that we've got going on they'll hear the Moonlight Sonata but they'll also hear pieces by Turnage and Elias in the same programme. And they're very different composers. And of course it contrasts very well with Beethoven. But the interesting thing when you listen to the Beethoven and alongside Elias and Turnage, you realise that all their pieces are very different. No, nothing, not one movement sounds the same. And Beethoven is very much like that as well. So there's a link. And even if people don't think about it very deeply, it doesn't matter because they will pick that up in just by listening. I think having the visual element helps. Although personally, when I look at videos of myself playing, you, you sort of, it's quite hard to do, you know, hard to watch. And, and I think there's a, an issue rather like football. When you watch football on the TV, it's, it's fine. But then when you go to a football match, that's completely different. Because it's about being there and about the sound of 80,000 people or in a concert hall, 500 people all in the same room listening intently to, to a piece of music. So that's what's missing and, and that is something that would be very hard to replicate virtually. But I think we can get closer and closer to it and again adapting, finding new ways of doing things, not sticking with the same formula and trying to refine what you do is important which is why actually having a starting point so for that for us this is a starting point of embracing tech so whenever we move on that's always going to inform how we approach the concerts and you know especially when audiences come back definitely and you talked there about the importance of educating people through your concerts and i know that you're also presenting a major educational project in partnership with kent schools which is an interactive family concert of eleanor alberger's snow white and the seven dwarves can you tell us a little bit more about that and why was it important for you to include an educational project in this program especially at a time when so many school children haven't had the opportunity to access live classroom music and indeed live music in person but that's exactly why I've done it. And we've done it the other way around. So we're starting off with this performance, which has been technically extremely difficult to put together, I have to say, because every part, there are 20 parts, 21 parts, we've had to record them remotely and it's really difficult music to play anyway. 
and then that's all got to be edited together and video put over the top and it, it's a study it's an interesting study in itself how do you record a piece like that when you can't hear any of the other instruments or maybe one or two of the other instruments and that in itself is interesting you know how do you how do you how long is a, a, a crotchet with a dot on you know if you can't hear someone else playing it then you have to guess and so a lot of the things that we take for granted when we're playing in a larger group don't exist when you can't be with those people because we we do a lot of things by osmosis and kind of by without talking just through listening and adapting um so that process has been quite interesting <laughs> in that respect but i i realized that so many children won't have had any music at all and before covid let's not forget that music was being pushed out of the state school curriculum pretty much which now this is a kind of a double disaster because you you already had it being phased out and things like maths and english stem subjects have become like the main thing now i would actually argue the opposite because i believe particularly at primary school level that music acts as a liquid link between all subject areas so this project is multidisciplinary and it will continue from october through to the spring of next year and will involve online sessions and hopefully some live ones once they can be allowed to go ahead but I just figured that this was something that was really important and that was the reason why I set this festival up is to inspire younger people to actually have a love of, of the arts and an appreciation for them I mean without that we're what 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 are we we're just a bunch of consumers every artist every musician has a duty to put something back into that system because there's quite a big disconnect, I think, between schools and the wider world. And actually, there needs to be a reconnect, and particularly with music. It's not necessarily about building new audiences. It's about inspiring and, and encouraging children to be creative. And 99.9% of all children love music. I've never met a kid that actually refuses point blank to, to take part because they love it. And... It's those kind of experiences that children remember when they're older. I mean, I've got no recollection of English lessons or maths lessons at primary school, pretty much, apart from when I was told off. But I do remember going to concerts or when, you know, someone came and I think a string quartet came to my school and I remember that really clearly. So those sort of things are really important to children. And, and they look forward to this project every year because we've been doing it every September for 10 years. And I think it's, you know, if you don't do, do it, then it's a shame, you know, they, they're losing out. Although in some ways it would be easier not to do it. But, but I'm just saying that the plus sides are out, vastly outweigh the, the negative sides. And I think also that these concerts, the whole programme is going to be a great way to introduce a wider audience and quite possibly a global audience to, to live music and to music they might not have had the opportunity to access otherwise. Well, yeah, I mean, that's also part of the programming because, um, you know, I like to programme music that I like and I think is interesting. I mean, Brian Elias, for example, fantastic composer, really varied music and some of the pieces that we recorded are, are from the 1970s so they're 50 years old and one of the interviews that I did this morning with him 
was interesting because we talked about that. Well, wh why, what's it like to listen to something that you did 50 years ago? It's very interesting finding out what goes through composers' minds and what their sort of inspirations were at the time. And they might be very different to where they are now. But one of the things that he said was he said that he was glad that he could hear a little bit of him in that music, even although it's 50 years old. He recognises himself in those pieces, even although his music's very different now. I just think it's a fascinating thing. Also, uh, with Mark Turnage, you've got the, the influence of jazz. So, you know, he, he's been hugely inspired by jazz music and has very successfully integrated that into his music. And, you know, it, it's, it's just really interesting to sort of be able to say, listen to some turnage and you can sort of hear elements of jazz and then you can listen to the James Pearson trio where they're playing, they're doing a hundred years of jazz and James talks about Errol Garner and Oscar Peterson and he can he can show the, the way that they played because every artist, every creative artist is different and they have their idiosyncrasies and they have their fingerprints and they develop in different ways and at different rates as well. So I think it's just fascinating from that point of view. One of the things that I think is really important is to have the human connection. You know, when we do modern music, we always try and get the composers there so people can talk to them, so that they can actually ask them questions and find out about stuff. And there are people, this is, you know, in a way quite inspiring. There, there are a lot of people that have come to Music at Morning in the past who've never been to a concert. And so sometimes they're completely blown away, especially when they talk to a, a performer or a composer. And they, it opens up a totally different world to them that they might not have even considered before. And that's why it's important for people to, you know, to be ambassadors for, the, for music. It's a great thing. And, you know, we're, I, I've immensely privileged to be a musician, although, you know, it has its diff problems and difficulties and they're, they're good times and not so good times. But I think it's a really important to champion things and, and find new ways of shedding light on, on, on repertoire as much as you can. So if you had to sell the at home with music at Morling experience to me in one minute, could you tell me why audiences should come and watch these events? Well, you can watch all our events and participate in all our outreach projects for £25. And that represents really, really good value. I did the maths and each we've raised enough money so that we can put this festival on. We're not totally reliant on box office and in this instance we're not reliant on it at all but we need your support to move forwards uh, we need audiences we need people to enjoy what we've put together and to be enthusiastic about it and I think that the festival that we put together will be really inspiring and whatever type of music you like there will be something that you'll really enjoy in this offering that we've we managed to sort out during these rather difficult times. And how can people book tickets and where can they find all the information to learn more about At Home with Music at Morling? Our website is www.musicatmorling.com and that's M-A-L-L-I-N-G, not M-A-U-L-I-N-G. <laughs> <laughs> and we're also on social media on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. 
and our website has lots of information about forthcoming events the artists the program you can buy season tickets you can buy individual events we also have a just giving page and a shop as well where you can buy branded merchandise which is quite fun and that's a new development for us to do that so much to Thomas and Naomi Belshaw at Wildcat PR for that wonderful discussion. I do hope that you'll be able to join me next time for another episode. You can catch up with all of the previous podcasts so far. I've interviewed some amazing artists and creatives, so be sure to check them out. Meanwhile, please do stay safe, and I hope that you'll be able to join me soon. Bye for now! Bye for now!